Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. We begin a new chapter in the Gospel of Luke. As you turn there, let me just invite those of you who are new to our church. As Ben mentioned, the newcomer dinner on Friday of this week. We'd love the opportunity to get to know you better, and so just encourage you to, to come out and, and participate in that. Let us know that you'll be coming, and we'd love a, a, the chance as a staff and as leaders just to, to get to know you a little bit better. It's a, a great opportunity for us to extend our ability to, to fellowship with one another, so I encourage you to come to that on Friday. Well, Luke chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the first five verses of Luke chapter 13. And if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it together this morning. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise perish. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let me pray for us as we continue our, our time of worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to come and study your word together, and we pray that our hearts would be changed, that we would have the right response in our hearts uh, to your word as we, we look at it together this morning, and we would pray that our hearts be soft and, and pliable. We pray for those who are uh, undergoing heartache this week. We think of those who've lost uh, fathers and, and mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers. We pray for them this, this week. and. Ask your, your special comfort on them and help us to be a church that loves you and displays that love and compassion to those who are hurting. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. It seems the last couple of weeks we've been dealing with some very difficult passages in the Gospel of Luke, and, and this morning is no exception as we talk about responding to tragedy. These are some very difficult verses to look through. Now, tragedy is, is kind of a, a term that's open to interpretation on the, the basis of a person's perspective. Uh, several of you have asked me this morning and, and over the last week for an update on my uh, third-born's uh, Christmas present status, uh, Noah. If you remember, uh, we were a little concerned about him because a few days before Christmas, we always give the kids uh, pajamas, and so our Three of our kids opened up their presents. It was pajamas, pajamas, pajamas. And Noah opens up his and goes, MP3 player, and uh, was very excited. And we had to say, uh, that's not for you right now. And we took it away from We took away his uh, MP3 player. You're worried, did he ever get it? The answer is yes. But it didn't work. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and on top of that, his other favorite present, he got a, a, a little DVD that his, his grandparents sent him, and that also doesn't work. We had to send it back. It came back again, we wa and it, the second DVD didn't work either. So he's had a, in his perspective, he was talking to us about this, and like tears came to his eyes as he talked about his Christmas presents and the fact that they weren't working. Um, that's tragic for a uh, six-year-old little boy. But is that tragic in a uh, perspective 
a biblical perspective, no, probably not. And this last week, as we've been talking, as I've been thinking about tragedy and thinking about response to tragedy, I've I've been thinking about the people that God would bring into this room this morning, those of us who would be here to look at these five verses together. And my belief is that there are, are some of us here this morning, when we think of the word tragedy, we think of tragedy in kind of an abstract sense. It's theoretical. Tragedy is something that someone else goes through. And we think of tragedy, and we think of 9-11, or we think of the tsunami in Japan. And my hope would be, for those of us who think of tragedy in that sense, that my hope would be that God would really break our hearts this morning, that we would have a sense of the imminent nature of tragedy, and we'd be more aware and more attuned to the, the tragic circumstances that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room are going through. We'd have a, a personal understanding of what tragedy looks like. And I'm not praying that God sends tragedy in our life for that purpose, but that we would have a, a sense God would break our hearts and help us to have a very personal understanding of the tragedy that other people go through a lot in their lives. For others of us, when I mention the word tragedy, some of us think in very, very personal terms. You think of grief that has happened in your life, perhaps very recently, a very fresh grief, or perhaps grief that happened decades ago. And so this could be a very hard message for you to think about as you think about the tragedy that's taken place in your life. And my prayer for you this past week, as I've been thinking about you being here this morning, would be that God would use this passage to really comfort you. And not only would it comfort you, but as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that you would receive a comfort with which you can comfort other people. And your response to tragedy in your life and the lives of others would be what God desires it to be. This is a, a very, again, a very hard passage, and so I, I pray that God keeps our hearts soft toward his word and allows us to respond to tragic circumstances the way that he calls us to respond. Now, here's what I want us to do as we go through these verses. What Jesus is going to do, or what Luke's going to do, and through Jesus' response here, he's going to set two tragic circumstances next to one another. And so what I want us to do is, is do three things as we go through these verses. The first thing that I want us to do is talk about the reality of tragedy, the reality that we live in a world full of grief and heartache and sorrow and suffering. That shouldn't be a very controversial point. And so the first thing that I want us to do is, is talk about the reality of tragedy. And then after we talk about the reality of tragedy, the next thing that I want us to do together is talk about two wrong responses to tragedy. Two wrong ways that we sometimes respond to tragic circumstances. And then after we've examined those two wrong heart responses to tragedy, the last thing that I want us to do together is talk about the right response to tragedy the right response of our hearts to the reality that we live in a world full of suffering and heartache and grief and sorrow. So let's dive in and let's begin looking, first of all, at the reality of tragedy. Now, remember what's happened as Jesus has been talking to these crowds in Luke chapter 12. Thousands of people we saw at the beginning of Luke chapter 12 are kind of trampling on one another, trying to get access to Jesus, and he begins to talk to them. And as we came to the end of Luke chapter 12, Jesus began to say some hard words about judgment. He talked about the necessity to be ready for the master's return, and he talked about reward that would await those who were prepared for the master's return. And he talked about discipline and punishment 
judgment that awaited those who were not prepared for the master. We saw that this, that Jesus is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring division among families, among people. And we even saw uh, last week that it's important for us to understand the times in which we live. As Jesus concludes what he's saying in chapter 12, he says, look, as you are aware of the weather, you need to be aware of the times that you're living in, and you need to be prepared to receive God's grace and forgiveness now while there's opportunity to repent. He said, just as you would go, as you went with an accuser to stand before a judge, you try to reconcile with them. So right now, as you exist in this time frame where repentance is possible, it's, it would behoove you, it would benefit you to get right with God. He's, he's just said that. And then we come to verse 1 of Luke 13. And it says that now there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so as Jesus says these words about the necessity to get things right with God before God's judgment comes, some people say, hey, hey Jesus, have you, have you heard about the Galileans? Here's an illustration of what you're talking about. You're talking about the need to get things right with God before his judgment comes. Did you hear about the Galileans who got God's judgment? And now it was nothing unusual for the Roman government to exercise hostility toward the people that were under its, uh, under its control. Josephus gives us many examples, this, this first century historian gives us many examples of the cruelty the Roman government sometimes practiced upon its citizenry. Herod uh, Archelaus, who was the Herod from the Christmas story's son, he killed 3,000 Jews at one time based upon suspicions of rebellion amongst their ranks. And so it was nothing unusual that the Roman government would treat the Jews with harshness when they deemed it necessary. And we don't know exactly what happened in this situation that the people are telling Jesus about, but perhaps something like this happened. Perhaps Pilate had come into Jerusalem for the Passover. He was there to kind of make sure that things went smoothly. And some people let him know about some people from Galilee. And these people from Galilee had been accused of some rebellious behavior. And they say, we know where they are right now. They're at the temple. They're offering their sacrifices for the Passover. And Pilate says, go get them. And they go in. And while these people are engaged in the act of sacrificing their, their sacrifices, boom, they're killed, struck down. And to the Jewish person, this would be particularly horrific and, 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 and really ironic. Here at the moment, at the moment that these people are engaged in their, their act of worship, they are struck down, they're, they're killed, and they're killed in such a way that either literally or figuratively, their, their blood and the blood of their sacrifice kind of gets mingled together. It's gruesome, and it's ironic, and it's, it's tragic. And some of the people that are there with Jesus say, hey, Jesus, is this kind of an example of, of what you're talking about? Is this kind of like an example of God's divine displeasure? They're trying to offer these sacrifices to him, and, and, G, and Galileans were a little suspect anyway. They said, and, and God was saying, I don't want anything to do with you Galileans, and here's a, a sign of my divine displeasure. Is that what's going on here, Jesus? Is this an example? It's a tragic circumstance. Jesus, in, I believe it's in verse 4, is going to give another example of a tragic circumstance. He's going to talk about a, a tower in Siloam, and Siloam was like this water reservoir where the southern and eastern walls of, of Jerusalem came together, and there was a tower, apparently, that was over this, this water reservoir. And at some point in Jesus' day, this, this tower collapsed, 
and it was a seemingly random event. And you can imagine people finding about this tower collapse and these 18 people dying, and a person would say, you know, I was just there this morning, or I was just there moments before that tower crashed, or I go by that tower every day, but, but I, I didn't today because I was instead on the other side of Jerusalem, and there's this event that takes place that's seemingly random, and it's terrible, and it's tragic, and 18 families have to deal with the loss of loved ones. In Jesus' day, tragic loss of life was a reality. In our day, tragic loss of life is a reality. And tragedy can seem so random and yet overwhelmingly real. Crushingly real. This past year, 2011, I believe was the most expensive year in the history of the world for natural disasters. In March of last year, what happened? There was the tsunami in Japan. Nearly, nearly 16,000 people lost their lives following the tsunami in Japan. It seems so random. Why Japan? Why those 15,000 people, those 16,000 people? And yet, it's not just random, it's overwhelmingly real. 16,000 people lost their lives, much less the, the loss of life that's going to happen over the next decades from radiation and all the other diseases that are going to take place as a result of that tragedy. It's so random. Why those people? Why not other people? And yet, it's not just random, it's overwhelmingly real. Joplin, Missouri, in May, a tornado sweeps through, decimating the town. 160 people lose their lives. It's so random. Why Joplin, Missouri? Why those 160 people? And yet, it's not just random. What is it? It's overwhelmingly real. It's crushingly sorrowful. And you don't have to go globally. You don't have to go nationally to think about disasters and tragedy. Our own community has been struck with tragedy in 2011. There's many examples I could give. There's, there's many examples that I'm sure many of you are thinking in your head right now as you think about things that have happened in our community in central Illinois in 2011. I, I thought of, of many examples. One, just think about November. A family that many of you know, a little boy that many of you knew and cared about. Uh, Thomas, in November, playing in his backyard. Terrible accident loses his life. And it seems so random. Why? And yet, it's not just random, it's also overwhelmingly real. I've had the privilege of talking with many of you in those moments where tragedy strikes. In those moments where tragedy strikes, it becomes overwhelmingly real. And there's, there's that moment where you wish that what was happening wasn't really happening. And there's that moment where you wonder, is this even really real? Is it true? Can this actually be happening? Can this tragedy be really occurring to me right now? And you long to go back to hours ago when that wasn't your reality, but now it's your reality and you can't escape it. I can remember being a junior in high school, and, and my brother's, our family's best friend's little boy died, my, my brother's best friend, and he was, he was hit by a car. And I, I can remember 
going to school the next day, I showed up late, and they sent me to the vice principal's office, and they asked, why are you? I didn't want to talk about it. I just said, just whatever you have to do to me, give me whatever punishment you have to give to me. And I went to my class. I said, I'm fine. I went to my chemistry class. I remember sitting down in my chemistry class. My mind is a complete blank slate. I'm listening to the teacher talk, but nothing's going in. But then all of a sudden, I, I don't know what happened. All of a sudden, I'm just sobbing. And you're confronted with this reality that, that tragedy, that sorrow, that death is ever-present. And there's not, you can't go back to that moment before you knew about tragedy in a personal and a real sense. The reality of tragedy is that it seems so random, and yet it's also overwhelmingly real. And in that moment where you grasp, I don't understand why this has happened to me, or I don't know why this has happened to my friend or my loved one, at, at that moment there's a need for an explanation. Think of the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah is talking about the destruction of, of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem. And as he goes through the, the book of Lamentations, you can see him trying to deal with this grief. And he's, he's trying to remember this time before this tragedy took place. And now this tragedy is taking place and his whole reality is altered. He says in verse 1 of Lamentations 1, how lonely sits the city how lonely sits the city now that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was in the past great among the nations. Verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wonderings all the precious things that were hers from the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe. There was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They, they mocked at her downfall. Verse 12, is, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and, and look at me, look at me, and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Look, I'm now living... Uh, Jeremiah says at this time in, in which I'm lonely, I'm desolate, the, the streets are, 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 are deserted, people have died, and, and, and this is how things used to be, but they aren't like that anymore. And throughout the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah tries to process and deal with and explain this terrible tragedy that's taken place in Jerusalem. He tries to create order out of this chaos. He has this need for an explanation. It's like reality has been altered. He has these new lenses of grief, and he now tries to view life through this, this, these new lenses. That's the reality of tragedy. Tragedy is ever-present. It seems so random, and yet for those who are going through it, it's crushingly real, overwhelming reality. That's the reality of tragedy. That reality of tragedy leads us to try to seek explanations. That's the next thing I want to talk about then are, are two wrong responses to tragedy as we try to seek an explanation. Look at what Jesus says. He says, uh, verse 2, as he talks to them about these Galileans, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Verse 4, he says, do you think that those that the tower fell on in Siloam, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived 
in Jerusalem. This need for an explanation leads to something we call a, a theological term called theodicy. A T-H-E-O, D-E-I-C-Y, theodicy. It means that the problem of evil. Now, many people, when I talk to them as they're, they're dealing with grief and sorrow, they, they say something that is exactly true. It's exactly true. It's the exact right heart response. When they're dealing with grief, they say, I don't know how people could get through this who didn't believe in God. That's exactly right. I commend them for their right heart attitude. Not all of us have that right heart attitude. Because, you see, there's a problem, for those of us with hard hearts, there's a problem that we have who do believe in God, that a person who doesn't believe in God doesn't have to deal with. You know where I'm going with this? The person who doesn't believe in God, sure, they don't have comfort right now, but they can say, you know what, this is, this is just something that happened. The person that does believe in God has, and, and goes through a tragedy has to explain this. Why did a loving and sovereign God allow this to take place? Or call me to go through this? That's the question that a person who's a believer has to deal with. I, I can remember, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I can remember being in my, my car, driving behind an ambulance at 3 o'clock in the morning that held my 13-day-old baby. And she wasn't breathing, and, and Whitney was in the ambulance with her, and I can remember following in the car. My mom had been visiting up from Texas to help us with the baby. We're following in the car, and uh, my mom begins to pray. And in my heart, I say, nope, not going to do it. Because, and I'm ashamed to say this, but at that moment when tragedy was seeming to strike me, my heart said, I don't want to acknowledge God's sovereign hand in this. And I don't want him to have the right to do whatever it is that he's going to do in this circumstance. I have a way that I want this to work out, and I'm not going to be open to any other possibility. Our need for an explanation, our need for an explanation is difficult when we believe in a loving and sovereign God. And there are two wrong responses that our hearts can have toward tragedy. The first response is the response that uh, Jesus mentions here in chapter 13, verse 2. The first response is this. The people that experience tragedy are extra wicked and, and kind of deserve it. The people who experience tragedy are, are extra wicked, and, and they deserve whatever tragic circumstances they go through. Jesus says this, he says, do you think that these people, these Galileans that, that suffered in this way, do you think that they were worse sinners than, than all the other Galileans, like they, they were somehow the really bad Galileans, and, and that's why they died in such a tragic manner? Or do you think that in Jerusalem, uh, God got this tower ready to fall on people, and he waited until the 18 worst the 18 worst people in Jerusalem were underneath the tower. And do you think at that moment were the 18 people that were the worst people in Jerusalem, do you think at that moment the tower collapsed and God got numbers 1 through 18 right at that fell swoop? In Proverbs, this, this idea that 
tragedy, is the result of sin, is not without biblical merit, right? In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24, the, the proverb reads, What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Verse 25 says, When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. In other words, there, there, is, there are consequences to sin. And those consequences to sin sometimes include tragedy. Now, in the Jewish mind, they had taken that truth that sometimes tragedy is a result of sin, and they said, well, therefore, all tragedy results from sin, or all tragedy is a result of sin. Think about Eliaphaz in the book of Job. Eliaphaz in the book of Job says, remember, he's talking to Job, and he's trying to help Job understand why he's going through this difficulty. And he says, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? Bildad will say to Job in chapter 8, verse 20, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. And so he's telling him to, to repent. He's saying that the result of Job's sin has been this tragedy that he's going through. We see it in Jesus' day as well. Not only these people who are talking about the Galileans, but remember in John chapter 9, as Jesus is traveling, he sees a man blind from birth. And his disciples see this man blind from birth as well. And they say, look, Jesus, we have a theological question for you. As we look at this blind guy, whose fault is it? Whose sin resulted in this tragedy? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus has to correct their, their wrong theology there. So... Some people say, well, look, I, I see tragedy, and I, I know that there's a sovereign God, and, and so the, the first wrong response is to say that these people that receive God's judgment are, are extra wicked and, and somehow deserve it. Now, here's the second wrong response to tragedy. The second wrong response to tragedy and tragic circumstances is to deny that there's any sort of relationship between sin and and tragedy whatsoever. So in other words, sin is, <laughs> if we believe in sin at all, it's kind of this, this, this theoretical thing over here, and here's tragic circumstances, but there's a denial that, that tragedy is, is ever the result of sin, or there's ever sort of any sort of relationship between sin and tragedy whatsoever, or that I have a responsibility when I see tragic circumstances to acknowledge my own sin. The book of Lamentations, the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, doesn't believe in that as well. As he talks about the tragedy that's undertaken in Jerusalem, he says this, The Lord is in the right. I've rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young men and my young women have gone into captivity. Lamentations 2.17 says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. Lamentations 4.13, as he looks at the tragedy, he says, this was for the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of her priests. In other words, her, her leaders sinned and God has brought this, this judgment upon us. And so one wrong, wrong response to tragedy is to say, look, this tragedy is falling upon these people because they're extra wicked. Their sin had a direct relationship between this judgment that they're undergoing. That's not a biblical idea. It's a wrong response to tragedy. But the other wrong response at the other end of the spectrum is to say, look, here's tragedy and, and sin is nowhere to be found in this. And, and there's no personal accountability that I have as I think about God's judgment and, and, and disaster and tragedy. 
You say, well, wait a minute. What is the right response then? Well, let me give you just another illustration of these two wrong responses. Jerry Fall, Falwell, and he uh, recanted of this, but right after 9-11, he said this, and right, right after 9-11, I believe it's even maybe September 12th or within that first week following September 11th, he said this, he said, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, the people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Now, now what's wrong with that response to tragedy? It's this first response, right? It's saying, look, I'm looking at your sin, and I, I look at this tragedy, and I'm, and I'm able to connect the dots that God hasn't revealed, and I'm able to say, this sin, this sin, and this sin have caused this event, this tragic event, to happen. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, following on 9-11, you had a lot of people coming out and saying, look, this has nothing to do with sin. Tragedy has, has nothing to do with sin, and, and tragedy couldn't, shouldn't cause us to think about God's coming judgment in any way whatsoever. Both responses, I believe, are wrong responses. What should the right response to tragedy be? Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 3 as he talks about these Galileans and in verse 5 as he talks about those on whom this tower fell in Jerusalem. He says this, No, he he says in verse 3 and in verse 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's the central point that I hope that we grasp together as we look at these five verses. The right response to tragedy, the right response to tragedy in our lives, the right response to tragedy in other people's lives, the right response to tragedy is repentance. The right response to tragedy is repentance. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. A couple things to notice about what Jesus says here. The first thing to notice is that everyone deserves tragedy. Everyone deserves God's judgment. Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, no, but unless those of you that are really bad repent, those that are really bad will perish. No, and those thousands of people that are there listening to Jesus, Jesus places all of them under God's righteous wrath. No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, Falwell's statement is wrong because it's not the abortionist that deserves God's wrath. It's not the gay person that deserves God's wrath. It's not the ACLU that deserves God's wrath. Who deserves God's wrath? I do. And as I see tragedy overcoming people, my response isn't, well, finally they got what they deserve. My response is, wow, I have a finite period of time in which to get right with God, and, and God has granted me another day. 
God has granted me another day to, to grow in righteousness, to continue to pursue him, and unless I repent, I likewise will meet that, not that fate particularly, but that fate ultimately, an ultimate judgment that separates me from God's love forever. That's the first thing that I think we notice here, that all of us deserve tragedy, that all of us deserve God's righteous wrath. True tragedy is forthcoming for everyone. The other thing we see here is that God has graciously delayed that tragic circumstance of final judgment. All tragedy is a sign of a future judgment that's coming. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul has talked about, if you go to Romans, you're in the book of Luke, and then you go to John, then Acts, and the next book is Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul has talked about the gospel and how the gospel gives us God's righteousness. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And then he talks about how God's wrath is going to be given to all that are unrighteous. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so in Romans 1, he's talked about all the ways that God's judgment is already being delivered on the world. He's allowing the world to continue in sin. That's a, a sign of God's passive judgment. And he says, look, God's kindness has given you time to repent, to turn and follow after God. Our goal is not to talk about the judgment that other people deserve, but to understand the judgment that you and I personally deserve. And to call other people to repentance, not from a judgmental attitude, but from displaying God's love and mercy and delaying his judgment. That brings me to the next thing I think we see from the, these words of Jesus in verse 3 and 5. And that's this. I need to repent. I need to repent. You say, well, wait a minute, Daniel. If the right response to tragedy is repentance, isn't that a little harsh? I mean, let's, let's say a young child has just lost great-grandma, and you come to the funeral and you say, Hey, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm just really sad. Yeah, you need to repent. Or that's you. Not, not the most effective way to minister to someone grieving, right? That sounds a little harsh. The type of repentance that we're talking about here, isn't this, it's the same in the sense of our, the way we respond to sin, but it's not the, the same, you don't call someone to repentance the same way at a funeral that you call a person to repentance that you find entrapped in some, some sin, right? It might help us to define rightly repentance. Remember, as we, we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we've talked about repentance. Repentance, Wayne Grudem defines repentance this way, I think it's a very good definition, he says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, 
a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. In other words, a person that wants to repent understands what, is, what sin is, changes their mind about sin, and decides to turn in a different direction. And so, for example, let's say that you uh, are involved in a situation at school where you've been gossiping about other people, and you've been talking about how terrible this person is over here, and at some moment, God grants you repentance. He allows you to realize, wow, this thing that I've been doing is really wrong. I've been talking about my friend this way, and God tells me not to do that. I now understand mentally that that's wrong. Intellectually, I understand the concept of sin in this area. Now, the second part of repentance, I don't desire to do this anymore. This gossip that before was so pleasurable to me, I now intellectually understand it's wrong, and emotionally I, I don't desire to do this anymore, and I'm making a commitment, and this is the third aspect of repentance, I'm making a commitment not to do this anymore. I understand it's wrong, I don't want to do it anymore, and now I'm making a commitment to go in the opposite direction. Now here is how tragedy and repentance go together. Here's some, some of my thoughts, six thoughts here, about the relationship between tragedy and repentance. Uh, thought number one. Thought number one. I think it's important for us to, first of all, understand that, that grief is not sin. In other words, as, as we or someone we love or someone we know finds themselves in a situation in which tragic circumstances have occurred, we understand that one of the things that we need to repent of is not grief. In fact, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we encounter tragedy, should empathize with those who are going through tragic circumstances. Whether it be someone in our community or be it someone across the globe, our response should be also one of, of grief and sorrow and pain because those are the same things that God feels as he encounters people that are in tragic circumstances. And so we understand that, that grief, first of all, isn't sin. The second thing, and these aren't necessarily in sequential order, it, it depends on the circumstances, but a, another thing that we need to understand as we think about the relationship between tragedy and repentance is we need to acknowledge the reality and the presence of evil in the world. Oftentimes, as people look at tragic circumstances taking place, they, they fail to acknowledge that the reality of, of evil in the world. In fact, I was reading an article that someone wrote after the collapse of the bridge in Minneapolis in 2007, and they were responding to uh, John Piper, who had written an article about the need for people to fear God in the midst of tragedy. And they say, look, there's nothing in this tragedy about fearing God. And I, I disagree with that. As we encounter tragedy, one of the responses that we should have is to acknowledge the reality of evil in the world. And a person, as we come into contact with, with terrorists blowing up buildings or, or, or flying planes into buildings, as we come to the reality of, of, of tragic circumstances, one of the things that we should do is mentally say, ah, I understand intellectually that sin exists in this world and sin bears consequences. And again, not saying that people who undergo tragic circumstances are experiencing God's wrath, but I say I understand that God's wrath will ultimately come upon sin. And I understand and acknowledge the reality of sin in this world and the grief that sin causes. And the third thing that I would encourage us to do as we think about the relationship between 
repentance, and tragedy. The third thing that I would encourage us to do is acknowledge the reality and presence of evil in my own life. In other words, the first thing I do maybe is I say, okay, I acknowledge the reality and presence of evil in in the world, but then as I encounter tragedy, be it watching a story on the news or be it my, my neighbor telling me about something that's happened in their life, as I see the reality of tragedy in the world, the next thing that I need to do is I need to understand there is evil in my own heart. The same types of evil that lead to God's ultimate judgment of sin. And as I I see the reality and the consequences of of wrath and the consequences of greed and the consequences of, of immorality, I need to look into my own heart and say, wow, God, what things in my heart exist there that are the same types of things that your wrath is ultimately going to be delivered on the world for? You see, the self-righteous Jews that talked to Jesus, said, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans trying to worship God? He took care of them, right? When I hear about tragedy, I don't think about the sin in other people's lives first and foremost. I think about the reality of sin in my own heart. And Jesus' call here is he says, "I, I, I tell you, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I understand the the presence of sin in my own life and my need to turn from that sin. That leads to the next relationship between repentance and tragedy. I need to turn from sin and hope in God. Turn from sin and turn to hope in God. I, I mentioned lamentations earlier. Lamentations 3, we we see the right response to tragedy. Jeremiah says this, he says, remember, this is Lamentations 3.19, he says, remember my affliction and my wonderings. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So he's at this moment, he's, he's despairing, he's, he's lost friends, he's lost family. This, this city that used to be so wonderful and, and experienced God's grace is now experiencing God's judgment. And he's at the lowest of the low. And he says this, at, he says, ah, but this I, I call to mind. This I remember intellectually and, 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 and therefore I have hope. It affects me in an emotional way. He says this in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have, what, hope in him. And so even though I I look at the past and I I mourn and I yearn for that moment to to be true again, and even though my present is so despondent, I understand and I hope in the mercy and the grace of the Lord, and I have future future hope in his grace. That's the relationship between repentance and tragedy. 
at that moment that I encounter the worst of the worst, the most evil of the evil, at that moment I understand the reality of sin and I say I no longer want to participate in this, the sin of this world and I want to turn away from it. It has no longer any attraction to me and I want to turn from it and I want to turn to God. You know, I was reading, a, I mentioned that article that I was reading earlier about uh, the person who said there could be no relationship between God's wrath and, and God calling people to fear him in this, this bridge collapse in Minneapolis in 2007. He says, it's, how, how in the world would someone make the connection between disaster and, and, and God's mercy? And how would a person make the connection between uh, needing to turn from sin and a bridge collapse? You know? And I tell you, in this way, tragedy continues to remind us of the fallen nature of the world. And as God removes, our our hands hold so tightly to the things of this world. And as God shows us how temporary and how fleeting the things of this world are, it forces us to remove our hands from them and turn to something else to cling to. Here in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah's hands have been ripped from this, this city that he loves so dearly. And what else is he going to cling to now but God? And so the relationship, again, when we talk about repentance, we're not talking about coming to a person and saying, ah, you are such a sinner, that's why so-and-so died. I hope you're turning now. No, we're saying, look, look, God in his grace and his mercy has preserved you another day. And now as we encounter the reality and the tragedy of sin in this world, I want to call you to no longer cling to whatever it is you're clinging to, but I want to call both of us to cling and to hope in God and his grace and his love and his mercy. Because they're new every morning. Fifth thing I encourage you here is you think about the relationship between tragedy and repentance we've t- talked about already, but lead others to deeper repentance through, through compassion. Call others to, to trust more deeply in God through, through compassionate, loving actions and, and showing them the mercies and the steadfast love of the Lord. And then finally, sixthly here, I encourage us to think about the relationship between repentance and tragedy to submit to the authority of a, of a loving God. To acknowledge his right to do what seems right, what is right to him. We talked about the two wrong responses to tragedy. One wrong response is to say, ah, these people are extra wicked. Therefore, they deserve whatever it is they get. Those 18 people that the tower fell on in Siloam, they really deserved it. Those people who got swept away by the tsunami, God was finally dealing with the sin that existed in that culture. The other wrong response is to say, look, there's no relationship between sin and tragedy. There's, there's no need to call us to repentance. There's no need to turn my ways because of this, this tragic circumstance that's taken place. You see how arrogant both responses are? One response is, is arrogant because it's, I know God's mind and I know that our God isn't angry at me. He's angry at all these other people because of their sins. The other response is arrogant saying, look, I know there's nothing in my life I need to change. I know there's no accounting for sin that God's ever going to do. Both responses reveal a hard, arrogant heart. Every person in this room right now has the ability to turn and repent. Every single person in this room has seen the reality of tragedy. Every single person in this room knows about the pain that tragedy causes either in your life or the lives of others. 
What does God want you to do with that? What does a loving God who desires a relationship with you, who desires to be reconciled to you, what does a loving God want you to do with the reality of tragedy? Does he want you to say, wow, I'm, I'm so glad God has finally dealt with those people? No, of course not. Does he want you to say, ah, God is, God's mercies are so great that he'll never call me to account for sin. There's no need for me to get my life right with him. No, of course not that either. God's call on you is if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God's call on you today, now, as you contemplate the reality of living in a tragic world where your life is finite, God's call on you is to turn from sin, to understand that what you've done is wrong, your hope in yourself is wrong, to turn from that, to no longer desire that, and to turn to faith in him, clinging to him alone, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. For those of us who are believers, God's call on us is to cling even more tightly to him, to allow God to continue to expose those things in our heart that, that represent a hard heart, a, a heart that hasn't clung to him in faith, to turn from those things of, of self-sufficiency, the things that, that show a love of the world and turn to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, even more deeply. God loves you. God has a great love for you and a desire to be reconciled to you, and God is also a God who is holy and is going to deal with sin. And at this moment in time, God has given you, in his grace, the ability to turn to him in faith and grow more deeply in your relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives, and we thank you for the reality that we live in a time where we can cling more tightly to you. Please remove from us a love for the things of this world and give us a love and a passion for you and you alone. We pray for those who've gone through, through tragic circumstances that you would work in their lives and their hearts and give them your comfort and your peace and their desire to, to cling more closely to you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen.